Now, welcome to the Wellbeing Improver podcast. I'm delighted to be chatting with storyteller, story structure consultant, voice coach, and traditionally published author, Leon Conrad, who's based in London, UK. Over the last 10 years, Leon has been doing intensive research into story and what makes it work based on both oral traditions of storytelling and on a new way of looking at story. The result is his new book, Story and Structure, a complete guide which outlines a novel way of looking at story, revealing hitherto unnoticed insights about story, despite the fact that we've been telling stories for literally thousands of years. And on today's podcast, we'll be chatting about accent softening and storytelling. A very well welcome to the podcast, Leon Conrad. How are you today, Leon? I'm very well, thank you. I'm in the moment. I'm at the ready. I'm on this show with you. Life is good. Wonderful. Okay, let's get to started. Where are you right now on planet Earth? I'm in my wonderful study in Wimbledon, southwest London, quite near the tennis. Oh, very nice. Very po- Can I say it's very posh? Is that S- SW1, SW, is that? SW19. SW19. And is it very posh? It's a very nice semi-central, semi-rural area. Lots of parks around. All right. Okay. So to get a global feel, so what's the temperature like right now where you are? Not in your in your beautiful office, but my computer tells me <laughs> uh, it tells me more about bitcoins than it does the temperature. Um, it's seventeen degrees. Wow, seventeen degrees Celsius for for our American listeners out there. Seventeen degrees C. Wow. That's, that's chilly for them, that is, Leon, I have to say. Okay, so I gave a little introduction about your background, so can you let our listeners know more about yourself? Sure. Well, I started off as somebody who was interested in music and singing and the power of the human voice to inspire. I worked with opera singers sailing the high seas and then gravitated towards musical theatre, musical theatre, performers wanting to sing some of the more operatically demanding roles, the classic music theatre, things like a Homer or Showboat. And then that took me more into public speaking, working with businessmen who wanted to present better, wanted to tell better stories, wanted to improve their oratory skills. And one of the most interesting clients I worked with was a poet who'd won an award and was due to read her poems at a prize giving ceremony at the Barbican in London, but was a stammerer. Okay. And getting her to the point of being able to read her poems out loud and enjoying it was one of the highlights of that part of my career. I am a storyteller myself. I have performed as a storyteller and performance poet, and I enjoy finding out what makes story work, what makes um, the voice such a unique instrument, particularly an instrument to inspire. Cool. I mean, I'm very interested, Leon. So this lady that was the poet uh, with a stammer, did she always have this, this stammer throughout her whole life or is it just nerves or... How, how did you help her to come over? came on in childhood and right. then stayed with her. Fascinating. And now, no problems, no issue? Can Not as poetry. far as I'm aware. Uh, my wife went through a period of being an elective mute at school and 
as a result of that, she sometimes starts stammering on the phone. Right. So okay. it can be something that comes and goes. Wow. Okay. That's, so what about then, you said about opera singers. I mean, what what's, give me more information about that. That's kind of interesting. Before we get into the main topic today, so... I mean, is, was this a passion of love for you since a young Absolutely, age? Absolutely, yes. To be able to stand on stage and belt your heart out <laughs> at full whack for at least two hours, sometimes two hours non-stop, and tell a story and act and have a whole orchestra behind you and be in costume. And uh, it's just wonderful. And when you go to an opera, when everything comes together to support the story, to support the experience, there's nothing like it. And, and who who would be your favourite opera singer, past or present or maybe no longer with us? I mean, because, I mean, I always remember uh, Pavarotti singing um, in the World Cup in 1990. Uh, but, I mean, would he be regarded as the same type of opera singer that, that or was he, is he a different type of singer? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yes, Pavarotti is one of the greats. Uh, Joan Sutherland as a coloratura soprano, Maria Callas as a heavier singer, and of those living, Philippe Jaroski, the countertenor, or Alex Pender, the great female singer. I would love to see her live. So when a client comes to you now for a little bit of help and assistance, I mean, do you, does, the, does the opera come out in you? Do you get that passion? Do you break out in song? <laughs> I could do, but if they're there to improve their speaking voice, well, you know, voice training is about training the voice. And the voice has this range of possibility. And just because you want to work within the middle to upper middle range doesn't mean you can't explore the top range as well for a bit just to see what it feels like. So why not? Yeah, fascinating. And this is amazing. Okay, so let's get on then to uh, the initial part of one of our topics today. As an Irish man, I'm going to be very, very honest, Leon, is that in previous company that I worked for, I'm going to name drop now in Singapore a few years back, um, I was asked by the boss, could I kind of slow down my, my speech and how I was talking? Because although I'm a native English speaker that my colleagues who are not so much native English speakers may not understand me and because I have an accent and because I'm Irish. So what is then accent softening? So you highlighted the fact that you were asked to speak in a different way because your colleagues couldn't understand you. And that is nothing to do with accent. It's to do with articulation and clarity of speaking. And this is what sometimes gets in the way of people being able to link what they instinctively feel, either as listeners or as speakers, needs work on in terms of their voice and what actually needs work on. You see, our voice is an instrument and it has two main aspects to it. First, there's voice quality, and that's to do with the basic monkey noise of your voice. Do you have a very guttural voice? Do you have a squeaky voice? 
Do you have a rich, resonant voice capable of a great amount of variety? That's voice quality. The other aspect is voice use. What do you do with that basic monkey noise in order to help people get your point? And there are five different things you can do with your voice. Each of them is an independent thing. You can change the volume, you can change the pitch, you can change the speed and timing, and you can change the emotional tone. So and if you learn to do those things and have independent control of them, as well as working on the quality of your voice and the clarity of your articulation, then you have an instrument that is very, very well positioned to help you communicate clearly. So Leon, then, is it then a conscious type of decision to try and train yourself to speak in, in a certain manner for others to understand? Because you, we do have different, um, say, uses of the English language, for example, uh, in different towns, maybe different cities, different countries. So is, is, is it easy enough then, especially if a client comes to you, to train them to express themselves and communicate um, in a way that everybody can understand? I think it's important to be aware that, uh, take a word that uh, hit me when you were speaking just now, countries. Countries. <laughs> yes. To somebody who is not familiar with an Irish accent, that might make them do a double take. Was it contraries? What was he trying to say there? It's to do with the vowel sound. It's to do with the uh, R sound, the consonant sound. It's to do with the pitch inflection. It's to do with the speed of how you say things. But there is no reason why you can't still retain your beautiful Irish accent <laughs> and, and increase your clarity. So one thing people do is to de-voice. They change final Z sounds like countries to S's, countries, which makes it even worse. And <laughs> it's true, true. No, it's true what you said there. <laughs> so okay. is it a conscious thing? Is it something you need to focus on to make it easier to people, for people to understand you? Yes. But then, you know how it is, First of all, you start, um, you don't know that you don't know. And then suddenly someone makes you aware of something. So you know you don't know. And then you go through a learning process and it becomes conscious. You know that you know. But ultimately, all that is about getting to the state where you don't know that you know. And it's automatic. Do clients or in your experience, Leon, do they feel offended that maybe somebody has said to them they don't understand what they're saying? Or if a company or an organization, I'm actually consciously now trying to slow down <laughs> my speech, but do, 
have you ever experienced that where somebody will come to you and say, look, I'm, I wasn't happy because Johnny told me in work that he doesn't understand what I'm saying and I'm from such a place and he's from such a place. How dare he? I mean, should we be offended by that or should we just educate ourselves to try and do it better? I think there's education that needs to happen on both sides. And what I try to do is empower people to go back and have conversations that are mutually supportive. So one of the stories I tell is about a scientist in France called Alfred Tomatis. And Alfred Tomatis was somebody who was really interested in how we speak, how we listen. He was called in to help communication in a company where the bosses were upper middle class, upper class French and spoke in a very formal way. And the workers were very working class. And although they spoke the same language and to a certain extent could switch in terms of vocabulary, because different classes use different words, they didn't understand each other. And what he found was that the ways of speaking language worked on different frequencies in the hearing. So it wasn't that they weren't hearing the words, they weren't hearing the nuances of the different pitch resonances that each of the people in those um, class um, class what am I trying to find? I'm trying to find a word here. Help me out. Okay, sorry. Uh, different class levels, structure. Yes, thank you. Yeah, sorry. Thank you. No worries. I'm here to help. Oh, bless <laughs> you. So these different people in the different class levels wanted to say. And what he found that was that if he recorded, he chose a piece of Mozart, a symphony, and recorded it and enhanced, boosted the resonances they weren't used to hearing, and got them to listen to that piece of music regularly, every day, once a day, twice a day, for a week or two, suddenly everyone was able to understand each other much more clearly. Is it then, okay, so this is kind of like a, a two-parter question, but I'll, I'll go with the first one. Is there a fear then of an individual losing their identity? because they may have to change their accent to help others understand? Or is that a stupid question? If a pig loses its voice, is it disgruntled? That's a funny, facetious way of answering the question. A deeper, more philosophical way is what do you identify with how do you define your identity culture and accent are really important they identify you with a kind of tribal collective ex expression of culture but you're also a human being and humanity transcends culture and connects to let's call it civilization and it unites us all and sometimes we need to balance those two things 
to be civilized, we need to be able to communicate in a way that makes our listeners feel comfortable, but also doesn't make us feel uncomfortable. There's a happy medium. And I am all about accent softening if people want that, and it's going to make their listeners feel more comfortable. But I'm totally against eradicating or changing someone's accent to conform to some kind of perceived social norm. For educational purpose, then, um, Leon, so say, for example, an individual is applying for a job, like, say, a corporation, and the corporation has different workers from different countries. In your own opinion, is it good practice for these organizations or companies to emphasize or get people like yourself to train new new uh, entries to say, like, this is how we must communicate, this is how uh, you interact, this is how you speak, or is that a bit over the top? That's a very general question, David, and it depends how it's done. If there is a unique expert, with a person with unique skills, they want to work for the company, the company wants to hire them, it's all going well, but they have a problem being understood. And the conversation the employee has with a company, either at interview stage or during their appraisal stages, comes to a point that both parties agree that it would be a good idea to improve clarity and effectiveness of communication, then why not bring someone like myself in? I think it's they should. Idea. I think they should. Let's get let's get you in. Just get, let's get you in there, Leon, as soon as possible. Let's get you in. So what about what are the steps then would you suggest or recommend or what process would you go through as simplistic as possible? So I was coming to you now tomorrow and I said, Leon, I was told that I'm, they can't understand me. Do you have any technique now that we can go through that will help me kind of, do you know what we used to have? I think when the singers start to sing, now they go, do re mi ma ba 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 ba, this type of thing. Do you have any steps then or a little technique that can kind of help me uh, or help them as well? to understand me better. Well, funny you should ask, David, because I've been doing this a long time. And over the years, I've developed a framework for effective communication. Voice is only a part of a larger framework. And that framework has three parts. The first part is all about thoughts. The second part is all about words. And the third part I call deeds, things you do. Voice is only one of the things you do when you communicate. You use your voice, but you also use your body. You also might use props if you're speaking at a meeting or giving a presentation. All three things, thought, word and deed, need to come together to support your message if your act of communication is going to be an effective act of communication. But what's most important is what is behind your message, your stance, what makes you stand up for what it is 
you want to convey? What is your stance? Why do you want to say what it is you want to say? That is one of the starting points. Once your thoughts are clear, once they are put into well-chosen words that are appropriate to your audience, why use a complicated word when a simple one can do? And once those thoughts and words are expressed in a way that is powerful vocally, powerful non-vocally in terms of body language, and you have powerful presence, then people will sit up and listen. I'm sure you have been in situations where you've listened to someone with an accent and they have still wowed you. Yes. And there is the proof. It's not just about voice. It's about a bigger picture and getting that bigger picture right. In terms of the voice part, there, remember those two aspects of voice I talked about, voice quality and voice use? Yes. That's where the vocal exercises, the do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si, do, do, si, la, sol, fa, mi, re, do, come in. But we don't do it necessarily with singing. We work on all three of the aspects that contribute to making a natural voice quality. Breathing, the phonation in the throat, and the resonators from where the voice leaves the throat to the front of the lips. If I stick my lips out, I will create a long <laughs> tube that makes my voice sound very deep and resonant. If, however, I draw my lips into a smile, then my voice changes. <laughs> True, actually. Very cool. And this is, what, this is what voiceover artists do. They create different character voices just by changing the shape of their resonating cavities. And how long does how long does this take? So if somebody was to come to you tomorrow and they said, right, I need need to soften the accent up and you go through the whole process with them. How long can it take or is it just depend depending on the receiver, how long it takes them to understand what they need to do? Is it like is it weeks? Is it days? Is it hours? How long is a piece of string? Well, Working, depends, yeah. Yeah. Working on your voice is a lifetime goal and process however if you break it down into achievable and very target based chunks then we're working in chunks of six to ten sessions whether you do those sessions intensively or whether you do them over five weeks or ten weeks is up to you and a lot depends on what a person can achieve between sessions on their own. Let's move on then to your your book, Story and Structure. What's that about? Ah, well, that comes out of my work as a storyteller. I tell stories. I am very lucky in having been able to find a person who has worked in an unbroken line of an oral storytelling tradition, Shunali Kambas, who comes from a Jewish women's tradition of storytelling and she's unique in that she has a not just a corpus of stories she contains about 4,000 stories within her that she could tell at the drop of a hat but a systematic way of learning those stories that she can wrap up in the palm of her hand and I've been training with her for about seven years now 
And in the process, I've looked at what people say about story and read books about narrative theory and storytelling. And in the process of that, I came across a book called The Cambridge Introduction to Narrative, in which the author, who is a man I greatly respect, came up with a statement. He said, what makes the story of Cinderella? The story of Cinderella is a question we'll probably never be able to answer with any amount of precision or something like that. Okay. And I thought, how come? How do you know? Yes, there are over a thousand, maybe 1500 versions of the Cinderella story, but they've all been identified as variants of the Cinderella story. So what is it that makes the story of Cinderella the story of Cinderella? If you take away the basic content, what is it about the shape of the story that makes it recognizable? And in Story and Structure, the book I have um, just published in hardback, it's out in paperback in November 2022. I where, where, let's get the plug in, Leon. Where can you buy it? It's available widely. It's published in the UK, but also available in the States. And you can go on to my website, leonconrad.com, and you'll find links there to where to buy it. But let me tell you more about the book, because why would you want to buy a book or browse it on Amazon if you don't know what's in it or what is in it for you? So we've been telling stories for literally thousands of years. We love stories. Stories move us. They make us think. They enable us to have good conversations about difficult subjects and they entertain us. Stories are great. But what I do in this book is show that there are around 18 different story structures that are recognizable and are used universally. And what's more, story structures can be found across different genres, across different narrative forms. One of the things I demonstrate in the book is that the story of the three little pigs, one of my favorite stories, has exactly the same structure as an academic essay, a well-structured academic essay, and a mathematical proof. And many people would say, oh, an academic essay, that's not storytelling. Storytelling is for children. Or... <laughs> It's for entertainment. An academic essay is a serious thing. And a mathematical proof, well, that is in the, the realms of abstract thinking. How can it ever be confused with a story? Actually, on a structural level, it can. The pattern that the ebb and flow of ideas takes through that story is exactly the same for all three things. And the pattern is very simple. It's based on an ebb and flow. So you start off with a character that has a problem. As a result, they go on a journey. On that journey, they meet a friend or helper. And they have to overcome an animal hindrance to arrive at the final outcome. You can see how that maps to the Three Little Pigs storylines in the story of the Three Little Pigs, can't you? Yes. It maps also to the outline of a well-structured academic essay. You have a problem. There's a point that people don't agree on. So you go on a journey 
you explore their various opinions or their, the various things you can do to establish who's right and who's wrong, you come up with some findings, some evidence that will support your point. You examine the opposing ideas and you find ways of either reconciling them in a compromise solution or showing that they don't hold water in terms of arguments and then you can come to a conclusion. It's very similar in a mathematical proof. Can I just ask then, Leon, so the structure you mentioned there, say with the Three Little Pigs or even with Cinderella, is there a certain amount of biased sometimes that the story, although the structure might be the same, the story might change a little bit um, based on how the storyteller or the writer sees that story? Is, is, does that happen a lot throughout the years with different um, you'll see like the remake of, say, certain movies, whether it be Disney characters or so on. Does that bias change at all? Um, or is it irrelevant because the structure of the story can stay the same, as you mentioned? It's a very good question, David. Thank you. And in my book, I distinguish four levels to story. At the very basic ground level is story as a phenomenon. Above that is a story or the story of Cinderella, which links to a very generic structural pattern. The structural pattern I mentioned, that the three little pig storylines follow, the academic essay that's well structured follows, a mathematical proof follows, is called the quest structure in my work. Okay. And then you have a narrative, a narrative that can be based on that structure. The narrative is where the storyteller's bias comes in. I can tell the story of the, of the Three Little Pigs in many different ways. I would tell it to a group of kindergarten children very differently to the way I might tell it to a group of teenagers. And then there is the individual performance that telling of the story so even though i might have a version of the story the three little pigs i tell my telling on one occasion will be slightly different to my telling on another it's just like if you go to a theater you're seeing a play but your performance will be slightly different to the performance slightly different to the performance that another audience experiences on another night do you, Leon, this is just, we didn't discuss it before recording the podcast or anything, but one thing I've, I've, I've the more I do these podcasts and the more I, I look at things in life and history and so on, in storytelling as well, have you ever come across historically a historical event which may have been written different based on the bias of the actual storyteller? You don't oh, try to happen, get it? It happens all the time. Right. David. I'll give you an example from my personal experience. I grew up in Alexandria in Egypt. I moved there. I was born in London, but moved there and lived there between the ages of six and 18. I spent my formative years there. And 
I went to school, to local school, and I experienced history as taught there. So in the Egyptian narrative, the British came in as usurpers, and it was a great day when Egypt claimed its identity, its independence, and was able to be self-sustaining. From my British side, it, the narrative was much more about the good things that the British brought to Egypt in their role as a protectorate, development of the Suez Canal, law giving, lots of, lots of things. And there is truth in both stories. And I think that one has to listen to many narratives in order to find the story. Right. So then here's an added question then. So how do you find, there's different truths in each story. So how then do you find the truth? <laughs> if you know what I'm trying to get at, is there, is there like books that go back years and years and years where you can actually say to yourself, right, there's no bias. This is an open question. There's no bias in these books. They're just saying it as they see it. Or is that, am I just being totally naive thinking that? Well, I think there is a sweet spot that you can get to. And this is certainly true when you work in the oral tradition. Storytellers nowadays, there are very few oral storytellers that have worked in unbroken traditions. They do exist, but they're few and far between. And they work in their own traditions. Many of them have disappeared. And you go back to written sources. Right. Written sources very often are captured by ethnographers or anthropologists who take the bare bones of a story. The bare bones you have to then bring to life. And very often someone might have a bias. There are stories collected by missionaries who have either imposed their own gloss on a story or left bits out that you can sometimes find out. But what's most powerful in the oral storytelling tradition is the ability to recognize where there are gaps. Story is not just a static thing that exists in books. It's a dynamic living force. And one of the things that informs that life of story is the need for balance and harmony. It's something I bring out in my book. I talk about the universals being absolutely vital to what makes story story. And the universals are truth, goodness, harmony. You need all three of them to come together to support the oneness of being if a story is going to live, resonate. It does not need to be a comfortable story to listen to, but it will hold a truth. If you mentioned they're bringing, bringing a story to life, if, if somebody was writing or trying to tell a story and they didn't follow the structure that you're laying out or you're, you're describing, um, does the reader then find it difficult to follow do you find that in your own uh, knowledge and background um, and experience? Is, is this usually what happens? 
Yes, absolutely. The 18 structures I've identified all seem to be structures that are embodied within us. And what I show in the book is that each structure comes out of a different kind of problem. There are problems you can solve easily by yourself. And that gives rise to a pretty simple story structure. There are problems that come out of the blue and that gives rise to a different story structure. There are problems that just seem too big, too enormous for anyone to be able to solve by themselves. And that gives rise to another, excuse me, story structure. Knowing the link between the story structure and the type of problem, it is naturally there to help solve is something that we've not noticed before. It's, that's one of the new things I show in the book. Another new thing is that formal poems, uh, formal poetic forms like sonnets, haikus, landes, razels, all follow a particular story structure. There's a different story structure for each of them. Knowing that gives you much more insight into why these poetic forms exist and what their qualities are. Brilliant. So what about then, so somebody's here listening to this and they love storytelling, they love writing. What kind of inspirational quote or vibe can you give them to get your book, get writing, get storytelling, get passionate? What, what, what can you tell them? get your story structure flowing <laughs> get your plot patterns get your plot patterns to support your story structure play with them enjoy the contrasts and art but it is about following separate storylines choose a character map out their storyline see where it's going what the structure is and then see how it fits with the different storylines in the narrative you're telling. You take your character, you map their storyline and the events in it in chronological order. You get a sense of the story as a whole. Then you, then you can play about with how you tell the story. You can start in the middle and then do a flashback, do a flash forward come back to where you were. It's a dynamic thing. If you get your story structure sorted, it's much easier, it's much more efficient to tell a well-crafted story. Okay, Leon, so you have now your story, you've written your story, and if somebody then wants to go and publish that story. Now, is this the hard part or is this the easy part? So you feel that you've written your story, you've written your book, and you think, I'm going to get it, get it out there to the world. Do publishers generally kind of jump at these opportunities? Or is there so many stories landing on their desks on a daily basis? Does a good storyteller and a writer need persistence to get their story out there? Absolutely. And you know, these days, there are so many opportunities. I'm lucky to, uh, to be a traditionally published 
author, but I also self-publish my works, and that gives me an opportunity to enjoy the benefits of both the exposure that a traditional publisher can give me and the benefit of having more control and doing my own thing when I want to. Authors have that option, and it is to do with persistence, it is to do with tenacity. Writing is only part of the process. There is editing, there's beta reading, there's being able to accept feedback, getting your skills right, being able to handle rejection, and enjoying the end product when a book is accepted for publication and you're lucky enough to hit the bestseller list. That's great, great advice. Say if, if you get advice and you get feedback, and the feedback is whoever you're getting the feedback from, whether it be family or a writer, um, and it's not very positive, but you believe in this story, you believe in this book and this writing, um, what would you say to somebody that may be facing that kind of situation that they're feeling kind of I've put so much effort into this book into this writing and storytelling and I've sent it to four family members or four people that I I'm quite close to and they say it's rubbish total rubbish don't don't continue <laughs> what would you say well I'd say that was probably very one-sided of them everything has a germ of positivity in it and you need a praise sandwich. You need the good bits and you need the <laughs> critical feedback. So I would go back to them and say, well, OK, I accept your your views, but what worked? What can I um, work on and keep and improve? And what should I get rid of? It will spark a conversation, hopefully. If that doesn't produce concrete results, then get your work in the hands of an experienced editor who will be able to tell you what isn't working and what to do about it specifically, or what skills you need to develop as a writer in order to improve your craft. Brilliant. That's one of the things. Story, structure, story and Structure is a book that deals with the nuts and bolts of getting the story right in the first place. I am working on a follow-on book called How to, uh, I've forgotten the name of it, How Master the Art and Craft of Writing. That's what it's called. Well done. <laughs> Master the Art and Craft of Writing. And that is all about developing your, the art and craft of writing the story once you've got it. I'm, I'm being nosy here. I'm on your website. So let's get down to the kind of the business nitty gritty side of things. If a individual comes to you uh, for services, uh, how, how does it work? I mean, do you have online courses? Is it one-on-one? Is it group? Do you go to corporations? So how does that actually work? All of the above. All of the above. All of the above. If you're coming to me for voice work, I work one-to-one. -one. I work in companies with groups or with um, individuals. You can book online coaching. If you come to me, you'll also see if you visit my website that I tutor. I typically work with bright students, very often gifted and talented ones, or um, students who fit the 2E twice exceptional 
label. I don't like using it, but they're very clever and good at one aspect of something and quite challenged by another. Right. I enjoy working with those with students with that kind of profile. I also do some Sen work and typically have uh, good results with people who are going to competitive fee paying schools, working up their skills to sit exams at 11 plus, 13 plus, 16 plus, or even college entry, entry levels. So they can get to an exam situation or interview situation in a mood that is all about, come on, throw it at me. I want to show you what I've got. Let me show you what I can bring. Brilliant. So it's, it's, it's um, yeah, no, you, you do the full caboodle. Is the full caboodle a, a proper word, Leon? Can I use that oh, these days? Of course, can I... it's, a, it's a wonderful phrase. It's two words, full caboodle. Yes, <laughs> unless we decide, you and I, today to make it into one word. And then maybe we can get it into the Oxford English Dictionary. Full caboodle. Caboodle. What is a caboodle? I don't even know. I think it's an, it was a saying years ago when, when I was growing up and they, you'd say something and they go, what is that? Go, oh, that's the full caboodle or... Let's say it's an expression, so to speak. But what, what is a caboodle? Is it is there anything? I don't even know. I'd what have it is. to look it up. I'd go to <laughs> an etymological dictionary like etymonline.com, one of my favorite websites, and look it up. And come to think of it, we could make a portmanteau word, faloodle. Faloodle. There we go. So we... It's a faloodle. <laughs> Very Irish of you there today. Um, so, where else are you on the social medias? Are you on the LinkedIn's and the Instagrammies and all that type of wonderful stuff? I am. And what I recommend people do is follow me on Substack. On Substack? Uh, yes. What is Substack? This is a new one to me. Is it? Yes. Oh, it's a great way of me sending out a regular newsletter, come article thing, but it's online. So you don't have to subscribe to get it sent to your inbox. You can just pop in whenever you like and it's open. So if you want to find out more about my thoughts on how story works, you can pop onto Substack and look me up. Leon Conrad, what makes story story? And I also run a competition there every month up uh, currently up till March 2023. I'm looking at one of the chapters from Master the Art and Craft of Writing and run a monthly course and competition there. Sign up learn something about the art and craft of writing who knows you could win the great top prize of a ten dollar amazon gift voucher oh wow that's pretty cool especially these days i tell you that, that'll go a long way <laughs> uh, and every entrant all the first 50 entrants get a free copy of my forthcoming book every entrant gets a free sampler so everyone wins. Brilliant. Subst so that's Substack. Is it Substack.com? Is it? Is that, how, is that what it's? Is it like, is that what the website is? Or is that what the, the media? Yes, Substack.com. And you look for Leon Conrad there. I'll Brilliant. give you the link and you can put it under the podcast and then people know exactly what to click on. I have it right here. Substack.com, the new way of publishing. Substack lets independent writers and podcasters publish directly to their audience and get paid through subscriptions. Absolutely fan. Oh, there's lots of people on there. And yourself as well, Leon. Brilliant. 
So all simply to say, uh, thanks so much to Leon Conrad for chatting today on the Wellbeing and Career World podcast. Um, as Leon has mentioned, we'll put all the links in so you can get in touch with Leon um, if you need to get in touch with his services or get his book in the uh, hours, days, weeks, months, years ahead. So thanks so much, Leon, for joining me today on the podcast. You're welcome, David. Thank you for having me.